was like, cool. I look 50 when I was trying to look 20. I was just this accidental founder who was like, how hard gonna be? Like I was manic about it to an extent. The work you have to do is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. I'm like truly the worst Salvador Dali fan ever. I'm like, I don't even know this story. Day today, Wednesday. It is. Exactly a week till you're off to London. Yes. Well, no, because this will come out when I'm in London. But people know. People know. <laughs> oh, my God. We're already. I don't know. That, that, that literally blows my brain when I think about, like, consistency of timelines. I'm like. Also, you're going to be fast asleep when this is. I'm going to be. waking up. True. I know. And I, I know. That's exciting. Yeah. That is exciting. Um. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm primed and ready. Still a little bit swollen um, from – it was actually like I love walking. I love really walking a tight line or whatever you say, walking a tightrope. I don't really know. I'm terrible at analogies. But I got a – I had an aesthetic treatment done and I was like, yeah, let's – it's pre-wedding stuff. I was like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And I'm like to my doctor, I was like, but I'm recording a podcast next week. Will I be fine? She's like, yeah, darling, you'll be fine. Of course, I had a reaction, total adverse reaction and had to take steroids. So I've just, the swelling has stopped today. But I think something happens when the, like when you're on steroids maybe and it like gets your blood cells all moving. So I've been going, going really flushed. Oh dear. Yeah, I know. You don't look good. You look great. Do I look good? Look I'm like... I look like I've had a facelift. Actually, two days ago, I looked like Jocelyn Wildenstein. You know, the woman with the... Oh, yeah. I look like that. I was like, cool. I look 50 when I was trying to look 20. <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. Episode one, we're going to talk about sticky startups. We are. Exciting, Sticky, exciting. sticky, yes. Uh, so something you often always say, Erin, is that you're an accidental founder. So why don't we wind back the clock and you walk us through how you stumbled upon being a founder? Yeah, I know. It's funny because this is a new phrase that I've just been thinking about. But it's perfect. That I know because I'm like, I truly am. And I've always loved small business. So I didn't I didn't study. I went straight into working in, in retail and, you know, I just had a career of just working on the shop floor or in, you know, head office or always in fashion, always in sort of marketing. Mm -hmm. And then I always thought as I kind of went through the process, I was like, I'm really good at operations. Like I really like marketing. I really like structure and setting things up and understanding how things work. So I will work for a small business. That was kind of my thing. I was like, I will work alongside a founder or an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. because they're very different, the two of them. And I will work alongside one of those, one of those people. And that's what I started doing. So I worked for a few small businesses and then I met Craig, who was my, ended up being my boyfriend and then my business partner. And he was a true entrepreneur, entrepreneur, however you say that. Everyone has a different way of saying it. Um, And he said, this is, so this is the Triangle backstory because I co-founded Triangle with Craig uh, 10 years ago now in 2013. We had our first sort of sale and we met and on our second date, I couldn't find a bikini. So we were a swimwear brand. I need to give the context. I feel like I always go into these things like everyone should know, that it's like no one knows. Um, so we had a swimwear brand called Triangle and when we I went on our second date, we had it at the beach 
And he, I went down and told him the story how I couldn't find a bikini mm-hmm. and how I couldn't find anything that I liked. And I just thought that was a fun story. I was like, this is an interesting story. It's disarming. It's a little bit charming. And his reaction was, oh, we should start a business then. We God, should. That's just how his mind works. Literally, like we should sell bikinis. And I was 27, so I was like. And you're in your Zimmerman bikini. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah oh, okay. whatever. So cue, you know, six months later, we're moving to Hong Kong. We're doing this. And I'm very much a kind of act now, think later girl. And I was 27. So it was a great time to try, you know, move overseas with my boyfriend and start a business. It was kind of like, whatever. Why not? Why not? Like, cool. This is great. And he'd had a business. And he was 10 years older than he was. Exactly. So had a business 10 years older, very entrepreneurial. And I was just this accidental founder who was like, how hard can it be? (laughs) How hard can it be? Turned out very hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you learn a lot and here we are. And I did, did learn a lot. I did. And he was that entrepreneur sort of figure. Talk to us about his past business. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah. Played. So he, like, he's had a really incredible history of doing a lot. I mean, he was, th- he was my age now when we met. So he was 38 or 37. I think 38, and he'd been a professional footballer, so he'd mm-hmm. played AFL, he'd, he was a commercial pilot, <laughs> he had had a T-shirt brand that was wow. really, yeah. No, and all the pies. I, no, truly, like insane. I was in awe of this man and I would do, I would have done anything he said. He was basically really, if you sort of turn the clock back and look honestly at that, that sort of relationship, he was the founder or the entrepreneur that I was going to work for. That was kind of how I set it up in my mind because I'd never entertained the idea of having my own business at 27. Mm -hmm. I feel like I would have got there on my own now, like ten during that 10-year period, but I was just thrown into it. So I say accidental founder because I've still done it all. So I have I know how to be a founder. I know how to be entrepreneurial and how to kind of cultivate that kind of creativity within you. I think though that you are really born with that more than you know, it's like a very small percentage of people that are entrepreneurs. Um and so I learned all of that, but I kind of got dragged through it without really realizing what it took. And because Triangle was this overnight success success essentially and we were I feel like people just see that as kind of being like how it is like if I just do this and I I give you know because my thing is like we risked everything to do it and we did but it was still hard 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 mm-hmm. work and relying on someone who'd done it and he'd been bankrupt so he'd been through a failed business which is truly one of the best best things to partner up with someone who's been through that because they've learnt so much about how to conduct business, how to not conduct business, where they went wrong. And he applied so much of that logic that I drank in really, you know, probably pretty begrudgingly for a while. But I took that in and I really learnt those lessons as well. So there were a lot of things that worked in Triangle's favour and me going along with that process, not, not knowing what I was in store for is ultimately why I left the business in 2018 because I was completely broken because I just had no preparation of what I was getting into. And I feel that's actually quite a big thing that we're seeing happening at the moment with a lot of businesses and founders. For sure. Yeah. You get the initial concept, you and Craig, you're on your date. How soon after are you moving to Hong Kong? Yeah, so where it was six months. So this is something that I get asked a lot of, mm-hmm. like, how did you start? You know, like how what is like how long are you in the ideation ideation phase? That initial phase. Do you do the logo first? Do you make the product first? Do you do the marketing first? Do you do a business plan? We never did a business plan. 
I don't believe in business plans, but that's because I've never done one and I'm sure some businesses need it, um, but we didn't need one. So we didn't do one. We started with Craig, again, very creative, very entrepreneurial. So he was very much designing the logo. Mm -hmm. You know, we were fitting bikinis. I was always fitting them as kind of, I guess like for a while there, I was pretty much a bit of a muse as well. And then giving my, what I learned as we went along and actually sort of launched the business it was at that point I really was able to step into what I was good at, which is marketing and customer behavior and customer-centric behavior and nurturing relationships. And these were all things you picked up on the shop floor and the retail because you never went to uni, right? No, exactly. So these are things that I picked up on because I did work in retail. I worked with people. I was front of house. And then when I moved back of house and worked in head office, I still had a very direct relationship. I actually did a marketing assistant role for a couple of years after working as a store manager in retail. Mm -hmm. And then I moved back into working for smaller businesses and working in their e-commerce. So I took a real likening to this e-commerce online store situation that was sort of just kind of burgeoning in what year is this? This would have been in like 2009, probably 2010. It was a bit of a luxury and option to have an online store. Um, and that was really fun for me because I felt like for me that felt so exciting and thrilling to be able to shop from your laptop at home and shop at all hours. And I really liked that. And I felt like that was going to be a really safe space for me to build relationships with customers because I knew from working in retail how many touch points there were that could turn a customer away. You know, bad sales staff, bad lighting in the fitting room, Mm -hmm. you know, just bad service, bad returns policies, no stock in the shop. So I had this real romanticized view of- To just absolutely nail it online. Absolutely. Because- Mm -hmm. You know, and it was like, it, it was so, it felt so natural because I was like, I can give them everything at all times, which is probably not ideal because I was doing, we launched live chat. We were one of the first businesses in fashion, oh, yeah. I think, to do live chat. And that was me. So I was, and we had a fair Northern Hemisphere sort of kind of base already by then. So I had to be online really like 24-7 and I wanted to be because I was obsessed with nurturing these initial relationships because I knew I had to treat all of them so incredibly well to be our, you know, marketing mouthpiece for the brand while we were getting established. Gaining traction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was just you and Craig. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So we, we had a studio apartment in Hong Kong and it was our office, our warehouse, our home. I honestly, there were many, many months of days, you know, where I would wake up in the morning and just pull the laptop onto my lap at like 5am or 6am, literally work. I used to have block my day up like this. I would work until like 11am and then I would treat myself to like a 15-minute shower <laughs> process. No, truly. And in Hong Kong, our toilet... It was so small. We had no hot water. We had to put a water heater on and I would, t- the shower head was over the top of the toilet. So it would go into, so the, would go toilet into the toilet Which is really handy for cleaning the toilet because yeah. you'd never really have to clean it because you did every time you had a shower. But it was like this tiny little thing and I'm 5'11 and Craig's 6'4". So like we are not Hong Kong people, you know, like we're too tall. So we're like in these cramped things, but that was my treat. And so I would have this shower, put the heater on, maybe maybe go down and get a coffee someday. Some days I didn't have time and I would just work and I would go back on my laptop. I'd work from bed because 
Craig had a desk and had his screen set up, but that was his domain because he was sort of more creative and I was all customer care marketing so I could just work from bed. And then I would do that. I would stop for some food, not much. That's a, I was, had my issues with that, which was sort of perpetuated through being so busy as well. Um, and then I would work until about 12 or 1 a.m. until I was so tired I had to close a laptop and then it would literally be close it and then the second I woke up naturally was when I'd start working again and that continued for months that's wild and you talk about it being tricky you had to sort of navigate around because over there there's no Facebook or Facebook's banned in China yeah so we we had Hong Kong's pretty was is pretty liberal um mainland China had no Facebook had no Instagram and so we were building hugely on social media. That and that's was our when biggest, Instagram was sort of born. Yes, that was our biggest platform, our biggest channel for everything, for growth, for marketing, for sales. Um, you know, it was it was Instagram was launching for business while we were launching our business. So it was great timing, very fortunate timing. But we traveled to China. We Craig basically lived in China for weeks and he'd come back for a few days and then go up. And I would try and do that as much as possible as well. But I needed to keep posting and keep Instagram moving, which was really my entire basis for building my side of the business. So I couldn't go into China and then have Instagram switch off. So I would go up to the border. I would spend a day in China. I would catch the train from Hong Kong Central to Shenzhen. And then I would go into the factory in China, try on the samples. That's why I went to try things on, to fit them, to get the, the fits right, make comments, tell Craig what I thought was good. We had that back and forth. And then I would, in the same day, usually jump back on the train, head back home. And then that was, those days sucked. Like I would be, I remember I would have my laptop set up and my phone and I would be furiously getting everything done before it all went dark. And that would stress me out so much because I was so obsessed with this incredibly customer centric behavior of replying immediately, being like, you know, paying attention to every need, everyone asking everything all, you know, I couldn't, I felt like if I let it go for hours, they were going to drop off. Like I was manic about it to an extent because I consumed you. I felt like yeah. we had something as well and I didn't want to lose that momentum. So even those feelings of going to China for the day was like, I remember that really clearly on that train and just some days being like, and you know how I know it was a really stressful time for me? I wore my hair up every day. <laughs> Because that for me, I don't do that often, especially back then. That was kind of like how I felt presentable. And I just gave up on every aesthetic, anything. I was just getting up. I don't even, I didn't buy clothes for like the whole year. I just was just not just that pure, pure, pure commitment to to work, to getting this going. And that's something that is still the same today that I don't feel most people understand because we ha- there are these crazy freak situations where people do succeed very easily and quickly, but the work that goes into it is so important and more important than ever now that we know how saturated marketing channels are like Instagram, social media, TikTok. It's so hard. I get asked this all the time. How do I scale? How do I find influencers? How do I market? How do I do this? Because it's not as easy. You know, we used to put up a photo. We were so lucky, so fortunate. We rode the Instagram wave, but you can't do that anymore. You can't. There's so there's like you have to find other approaches, and, and it's forever work changing. You've got TikTok. You've yeah, got, you got to keep up with it all. Yeah, yeah. We're in a crazy shift at the moment too, where things are shifting, and no one knows where it's shifting to. And so I don't know either. I just know that there's a few things that you can, and we'll talk about this another time because that's more marketing and branding and behaviors and understanding that and getting aligned with your intentions for the brand. These are all these are all other things. You know, I think the key thing that founders need to understand and people going into business need to understand is that the work you have to do 
is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done mm-hmm. to get a business off the ground. It is not, oh, I want to work for myself. This sounds fun. I want to have lunch at with a friend at 1 p.m. I'm like, no, you are going to be working 20-hour days if you want to get it done. I, taught, I mentor founders who are doing this. They are having the toughest time. They One day it's all like, oh, my God, a break, the, yay, this, this. And the next day it's they are something's happened and they think it's going to kill their business and it is like not a pleasurable experience. It is tough. It is not for everyone. Hard work. It is not for everyone. No. No, you got to be really, you got to be committed. You got to be ready. Craig's the entrepreneur. You're the founder. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about entrepreneur versus founders. Ooh, I know. Oh, it's Ooh. In a cage fight. Like, what? A- <laughs> yeah, look, I love this one. This one is something that's actually really kind of come up quite recently for me lately. Mm-hmm. And I've been really understanding it and processing it. And, you know, an entrepreneur is is a highly creative person and I feel that they are a very small percentage of of the population. You know, they are artists, they are creators, they are not from what I, you know, from especially if I, if I just referenced, for example, Craig and myself, mm-hmm. Craig was so highly creative and not very systems functions. You know, he he'd learned that behavior and he'd learned that through his failed business before, but he was an total creative like not only was swimwear an idea but you know he wanted to do other like another brand with me when triangle was in its sort of you know initiation and 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 sort of like before launch and then had another 40 50 60 ideas during the time we were together everything he's like entrepreneurs have this way I feel where like they see something and they are like I want to do that better I can do that differently. I want to change this. They are highly, highly sensitive, aesthetic people with this total different brain. Founders are more operations people. Founders is kind of like, you know, still that thing of like, oh, I have an idea and I have the systems and I have this, but I really think that they are they are separate. They both have their place. Some people can be both. Some people can't be. Again, this is not saying that, you know, you have to be one or the other or you have to take this from that. It's just knowing who you are, what you're good at, whether you can do both, what that means for your business, your idea. Do you need a business partner? Do you need a co-founder? Do you want to work alone? Do you want a team? These are things that you really do need to consider before you start a business. You know, I get questions a lot like, do I take investment? Do I get a business partner? If I, Because it's very, this is the thing, even for me when I had a co-founder, it was so incredibly isolating having a business. It is because you are just going at it and you get rid of every other part of your life. No social life, you know. No, no dinners, no fun stuff. It's just work, work, work. So it is isolating. So before you jump into that, you have to know what you're good at, where where you're going to need help with, in what way. It's a really big process and not one to be stepped into lightly. And the reason why I really like focusing on founder versus entrepreneur is like, if you actually feel you want to have a business or you feel you have an idea, sit with it, think about it, process it, look at other people and what they've done, feel inspired, know the difference. Because entrepreneurs is like, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur. I've learned to be entrepreneurial. It's like Craig learned to be a founder. I learned to be an entrepreneur. I still would never, I, you know, never say never, but I would never start a business again that sold a product because I know I don't have the creative, I don't have the ideas. I can see an idea and then I can go, I know how to strategize that. I know how to get that to market. I know how to do this. I know that that comes naturally to me. The actual idea doesn't come naturally to me. So you have to know who you are in that way to then go, all right, 
this, if I do this, I then need that, or maybe this actually isn't going to be for me. Uh, and that's why I would never start another business because I, unless I had an entrepreneur by my side mm-hmm. to actually have that creative process really driving it. So do you think you can learn to be both? You can learn these skills at uni, you can learn from experience, but yeah, I don't know about learning it. Well, anyway, uni is a sore spot for me still. I'm like, you don't need to learn anything at uni, uh, but you do. Um, you, you can, absolutely. You mm-hmm. can learn every. You can learn everything. Everything is teachable, you know, and they always say one thing that I, this, this quote that I really like at the moment is obsession over talent, obsession over skill, and that, that's, that lends to saying you can learn these things if you are committed enough mm-hmm. if you are obsessed enough follow it through you're going to if you are not entrepreneurial and you are not creative by design you can learn that but that is going to be a monumental effort a monumental effort and that needs to be very very considered worked through before you just jump into a business that's why we've seen that many businesses either never get off the ground mm-hmm. or they started in a year or two in they're like what do I do now you know, it's it's like that's what's happening because people need to understand who they are first before and they, they go to do into the work it. first. They need to do the work. They need to do the work. Well done, smart. Tick. What about uh, <laughs> the founder of Face Gym? She's got an interesting yeah, background. She story. does. So I love this. So I met so Inga Theron. I met her earlier this year. I had a dinner with her. Um, so she's the founder of Face Gym. So Face Gym, I knew about Face Gym. So they launched in two thousand and fourteen. So that was, we were still living in Hong Kong. Triangle was having some success. So we were starting to travel. Mm -hmm. And I went to London and in Selfridges, I saw Face Gym. And it was these, it was in Selfridges in the beauty hall, which is unbelievable. And they'd kind of redone it. And there were these reclining chairs, like three of them. And I was like, what the this hell is this? This is so out of this? place. I was like, this is space age stuff. <laughs> like facials and all this was always done hidden in a room. But this was like meant to be this lunchtime treatment that you go in and you're the busy working girl in London, you know, Selfridges around there, and you get this like high-tech facial massage, infusions and all these little bits and pieces, and then you're on your way. Mm-hmm. I didn't do one because I was a bit overwhelmed. And I remember at the time thinking this is so ahead of its time. This is so highly, highly, highly creative and pure and incredible and amazing. And it kind of left my mind and I didn't think about it again. And I saw Face Gym around and I was always just like so intrigued by it um, from a distance though. And then this year I had the very, very fortunate experience to have dinner with Inga. She came to Australia. I flew up to Sydney to have dinner with her. I was really interested in her story. And when I met her, I was like, oh, you're such an entrepreneur. I like, get it now. This woman is a force. Like she reminded me of Craig in that way. Like idea after idea. And these are cutting edge ideas. She's thinking of things that haven't been done before. That is how Face Gym came about. And you're writing them all down. Oh, yeah. No, I was like, <laughs> tell, me, tell me exactly what your ideas are. Um, an incredible woman. And like almost almost too much in that, not like in that way, but like like how, how, how are you – how are you f- like living with that brain? It is like how do you go to sleep at yeah, night? How do you turn yeah. off? Yeah, I mean Craig slept four hours a night. <laughs> if that, like he he would go to bed and be up working at three four a.m. every day. Like that is also when you know someone who is up doing that. That's a special kind of person. That's like a I'm like trying to get there. I'm like five thirty. 
535, 5 a.m. jet lag just yeah, never went away. No, I'm like, come on. <laughs> but, you know, they're the people that like they are. You you can train yourself to be that, but people that are just that, like they're, they're just built that way and she is one of those women. So inspiring, so like she's just, she's just a force and really what an entrepreneur is like. And I look at that and I sat next to her at this dinner and I was like, yeah, I'm the founder. I'm, I'm never going to be the entrepreneur. I don't think like that. I don't look at things with that way. Whereas the idea she was telling me, I was like, ooh, I, I could see how that would work. I can see how things, or I like to, not that I can, but I love to understand how things will then get into a marketplace and how they'll be absorbed and how the customer psychology will move around it or react to it or like it or, or not like it. Whereas yeah. she's like total ideas, ideas, vision, vision. They're visionaries. Entrepreneurs are visionaries. And that's a very, very select group. And she was, when I met her, it was just so, it was so lovely to be like, okay, yeah. Because you can feel that. When I saw Facetune, I was like, this is just crazy, incredible stuff. And then meeting her was like the perfect match. Like there was like, that makes sense now. Do you think her having it open in the centre like that was a bit of a tactic? Yeah. As you said, you know, facials are normally done behind the exactly. scenes. No, in a totally. Closed room. Yeah. She's and ahead of her time. Like, it- I mean, they launched here. So they launched in Mecca and they've launched in Sydney and mm-hmm. they have the chairs in the in the middle oh, yeah, of we the went store. There in yeah. Couldn't get in. I was like, <laughs> hello, Inga, let me in. Um yeah, and that's the that's the thing. It's meant to move everything out of this because facials, everyone like you have to commit time mm-hmm. and it's a relaxing thing. And she's like, no, sometimes we just need to, you know, kind of like bash the shit out of our face and get some movement and and lymphatic kind of drainage and do all of those things and then be on with our day. And that's really progressive thinking. I actually think that a lot of people have caught up to that kind of way of being now. But you know, Australia's like we, we like to pick up on things a little later. So I think it's still like Behind great, 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 it's like great timing still. But yeah. But it's really, it's just, it's just flipping things on its head. It's like looking at at this, like it's like think, it's like all those cliches, like thinking outside the square, like thinking differently. You know, it's really like, it's important. It's crucial, and that's something that people, women like her, have absolutely. Yeah. You're obsessed with Salvador Dali. <laughs> Can't stop talking. I am with, I reckon I have the most limited knowledge of him for someone that's interested in him. Just got posters of him on the wall. It actually makes me embarrassed to be like, I don't know anything about any of his sculptures or anything. But I spoke to someone last week and they brought up Salvador Dali as being a true entrepreneur. And it, I was just like, that's like truly like so he was born in 1904 so he was in his 20s in the 20s which is great for like my brain to comprehend that and so he was considered an artist back then Mm -hmm. because the resources were less and you know they they everything was done as art you know they didn't have the internet and tv and and anything so an artist but if he was around today he would be an entrepreneur because it's that way of thinking. Like he did things, he's like the way he's approached his art and his works and the way he marketed them, you know, is is incredible. The things that he did that would have been things that went viral, that kind of like guerrilla marketing. like Yeah, because there's that really interesting story about how he strapped 12 pieces of his artwork to his 
life jacket when yes. he went to New York. Is that right? Yes. So he, very viral movement. I mean, he was a surrealist. Imagine how so. viral that would have gone on TikTok if it was, oh my God. If it was 2020. Well, I feel like these are things that people try and do, but they don't land as well because I think a lot of people try and do those things now. Remember when like guerrilla marketing was a really big thing for a mm-hmm. while? It was like probably five or six or even longer, 10 years ago. And you do like flash mobs and like people would like put things in the sky and just so like he was doing that back in the 20s, you know, like proper viral stuff. Yeah, he really he really knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. Well, he, yeah, he did. He did. I wonder, was he like revered in his time? No, because that didn't land well. They weren't interested. So it's like one of those things now we all look at going, oh, yeah, we should all like do crazy viral things. But they're often appreciated after time. Exactly. And that doesn't happen anymore because so many people try and do these things now. It's so saturated. You have to look at history to look at these things because entrepreneurs are not just business people. Mm-hmm. They're not. They've just like attached their art and their creative vision to business. So when you start to think in that way, you can start to differentiate who you are and whether starting a business is for you and whether you should really even call yourself an entrepreneur, to be honest. Yeah, cool. And Which he's I got, don't. He's got his exhibition in Paris mm-hmm. and that's where you'll be going. Look, I am. my trip is London, New York, LA, but there is a museum in Paris um, that I'm really dying to go to. So I may go. I'm really interested. I might go there. I, I whip around museums at literally blinding pace. You've got to I'm go. Like, You're his biggest fan. I know. I'm his fan. I'll be like, mm, this thing, this works. Did you know he was yes. born in 1904? Yeah. I'll do, I'll, I'll read up on the Eurostar <laughs> and I'll be like, now I know. But there's all these, so what I was told, and this is now I'm going to sound like an absolute moron, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you, I think you can touch these sculptures or maybe people do. I don't know. I don't know how you can actually touch them, but there's this whole, like it kind of like lights up the sensory part of your hand. And if you touch it or stroke some of the sculptures in the right way, you can have this very hallucinant it's like an interactive sort of experience yeah through things that he did back then so anyway so we'll see if I go which now I feel like I have to (laughs) we'll see my very uncultured self being like "Hmm, now I'm obsessed with Salvador Dali I don't really it's like could not be more of a contradiction of who I am than actually being into him but true entrepreneur I know you always talk about how how hard you guys, you and Craig worked, mm-hmm. but just to play devil's advocate, you did have a little bit of help. <laughs> okay, you can true? ask me Is tough questions. Tough love. You're like, can I ask you a tough question? <laughs> um, yeah, totally. I mean, we were an overnight success. Yeah. We did launch at the same time. I mean, Instagram was around, but everyone was doing weird, like filtered photos of their food and like no caption. I just remember autumn leaves and autumn colours. <laughs> that's literally my memory with a Polaroid border. Like that's my memory of Instagram. And then when we launched Triangle, and that was early 2013, we were very quick to go, this is this Instagram thing is before that, mm-hmm. everyone was a blogger. So it was all blogs. So all the popular people were writing blogs. And they're on Tumblr and yeah, and mm. they were already earning a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They were like making a lot of money. To- it was like all everything on Instagram, like partnerships and sponsorships and collaborations, was happening, but on these individual, you know, WordPress or Tumblr or Blogspot. There's only Blogspot actually. I remember that now. Like Kiara Ferrani, Elle Ferguson, you know, um, Ormi Song. They're all original bloggers, and they moved on to Instagram. And so we saw this happening, and we were like, "This is going to be good. Pounds it's going to suit us. Suit yeah. us. Like let's let's go with this." So. So we rode that wave and that that was incredibly fortunate, lucky timing. And that is a lot of what happens with success is, is luck, you know. Luck is a huge, huge 
part of success. I wholeheartedly believe that our you know, our approaches and our beliefs and our structures and our systems, we were setting up for success, but it was going to take longer. It probably would have taken two, three, four, five years to get to where we got within six months because we rode an Instagram wave. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think is really, really important is to sort of highlight the fact that stories like mine are the exception to the rule. Every podcast is on a success story. Every time I go on a podcast as a guest is to talk about my success story. Absolutely. You never hear about a fail. No one jumps on a podcast to talk about a failed no story. No one wants to hear no it. They well, exist. they do, but they want to hear about the failure and then the success. Exactly. You know what I mean? And it's like these are the exceptions to the rules, but it's like it's like those, you know, you keep seeing that. So everyone that's online, we're, you know, absorbing all this information and we're seeing Triangle and we're seeing Canva and we're seeing, you know, like Frank Green and we're seeing all these incredible stories and, they, they, you know, all like you see these snippets where it's like how she turned a, you know, I saw this morning from um, air, from like, what is it? The mattress on the floor? Like the, you know, air, like a, like a blow fake, up mattress. Thank you. I'm like air mattress. <laughs> I'm like koala mattress. Air mattress. Emma mattress. A blow up mattress to a $40 million business. Yeah. You know, and you see those and you're like, oh, that could be me. It could be me. But that's the exception to the rule. Like that doesn't happen. It's like winning the business lottery. And so a lot of people kind of think that could be me and it yeah. could be you. It might be you. I hope it's you. Like it'd be great if it's you, but don't let that lead you and take you away from the work you have to do. Like it's like when people are like, oh, I have a side hustle and like how do I take the leap and I feel this. It's like, you, 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 you know, again, someone probably has made millions or even billions from having a side hustle, but that's the exception to the rule. Most people are going to have to quit their job and go full time and then maybe work for three years either running at a small loss or you know, breaking even, which is fine, you know, profitability and having been cash flow positive from day one's the goal, but we can break even for a while if we can, depending on our circumstances. Again, this is going to benefit younger people because they're going to not probably have a mortgage, a husband, a family. You have to see what this is for you. It's like, it's just like that thing. It's like when you start to externally reference and you compare to other people, you're going to start to think like, I could do that or I should do that. You just have to look at where you are in life, how much you can afford, time, actual money, whether this suits your lifestyle, and then make that jump into having a business. I, as, and I used to say this, it's just about finding a gap in the market and having a product. I was wrong. Take it all back. I take it all back. <laughs> that is one step. It's an important step, sure, but it is one tiny baby little step in the other many, 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 many things you have to do before you actually take the plunge into starting a business. All right, my favourite part of the show, we've got – some Q&A, some quick fire questions for Erin that you don't know what they are, but I do. I've collated them myself. <laughs> so here's my trusty little phone. I, I know. Well, I, we love the q and I love the q and I do. I feel like it's always a bit of a challenge because I don't know and I have to really think on my feet, which is like terrifying. Perfect. But That's you in your element. It Off really, the cuff. Okay, now I'm, you've jinxed me now. Now I'm going to be like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's just go straight okay. into it. All We've right. got question number one. Yes. So I was wondering, what did you do for launch with Triangle? Um, so did you do a soft launch or did you have like a big launch party and other marketing activities? Um, I'm launching soon my own brand. So I was wondering... Lovely. Take it away. I know. Well, firstly, Triangle. that accent makes mine sound so <laughs> bogan. I'm like, all right, let's let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> After hearing that incredible accent. Um, yeah, so 
<sighs> really slightly triggered by launch party. I have very strong feelings about a launch party. Um, I'll tell you what we did first. It was essentially a soft launch and, you know, most businesses do have a soft launch because they're not coming from a platform. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't. So, like, we, it was a hard launch and a soft launch because no one really knew who we were. So we put our styles up online. I think we had nine to start with and we just – told all our friends and family and posted on Instagram and just started to very slowly gain some traction. You know, we did we did a little bit of gifting. We actually initially, because we needed the money, we were just trying to sell bikinis for a little bit cheaper to friends and family. And then we kind of moved into gifting a little bit, but we like couldn't really afford to gift. A friends and family discount code? Yeah. No, yeah. I don't even know if we had a code. I think we were just doing, you know what? Actually, I don't know what we were doing. I moved back to Australia for the few months to launch because we actually did, and I'll talk about this another time, but we actually did launch with wholesale as well um, initially. And so we had a few accounts in Melbourne. So I went home to sort of facilitate that. And also we were only in Australia initially. So I was just sending all the products out from home. So I moved back into my mom and dad's house for a few months and I had all the bikinis in the boot of my car, real hustler behavior, and would drive around to like my friends and they would give me the $60 discounted. They were usually 79 and I would give them a bikini. And God, like, it's like the little Red Bull car. Yeah, just no, truly with like bikinis, but it was a little, it was my mum's golf. <laughs> <laughs> Not as cool. And um, yeah, and so that's that was how we launched, you know, and it was very off the cuff. There was no plan, mm-hmm. you know. I I do want to mention the launch party. I just, I just, unless you are someone with a platform with you know, an actual, you're an influencer, you're a celebrity, you're a person of, of note and you are, that makes sense. You know, you can launch with something, but if you are launching and you have limited funds, which is usually the way, a launch party is going to, there's two things. It's going to cost you money. It's going to take energy and effort away from what you should be focusing on, which is selling your product. Mm-hmm. And it immediately goes against customer-centric behavior because you are having a launch party inviting influencers, people that you think are cool, people that are special. You're literally setting the tone for your brand to be cooler than your customer. And the danger in that is high really, really high. I don't like that. I think people want to be cool. They want to be elitist when really your customer is king, your customer is queen, your customer is the person that should be getting all the benefits of any kind of launch party, not some freaking person from some, I'm not going <laughs> to mention a reality show by name, but from, you know, like that's like, no, I, I, I know these people have a place and I get it, but not for a launch. It is really, really risky and dangerous to be anything other than customer centric at the start. I feel like that's so important. You need to put yourself in your customer's shoes, see oh, how they'd feel. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I get the thing of like wanting to be positioned as like a cool brand or whatever, but, you know, it's such a risk to set yourself up that way. And it's just going to cost you money. Like put that money into your production, put that money into maybe gifting influential people, put that money into other things other than a launch party that is going to come and go. It's definitely not going to live up to expectation and it takes up a lot of energy and time really really does and it'll just take away from what you should be focusing on so if you wanted to host something what would you what's an alternative like a pop-up shop later down the track when you could oh, afford yeah, something way like later. that like involved. you need to understand what your brand is because yeah. a lot of the time you put a product out and then you learn about it and then you realize who your customer is and mm-hmm. then you realize what they want you can't tell them that at the start and say this is where i am that's like Everything has to be so fluid and flexible. That's why 
launching softly in that way, which is not a soft launch. It's just launching with that flexibility. Yes, you have to have the vision and have the authority, but you need to also listening to what your customer is actually wanting from you and telling you. Really, really important. And then you can do those things down the line. You know, it's always, you're going to be presented with things no matter what that are going to rock the boat and change the way you perceive your brand, your service, your product, your business. You just have to learn how to navigate through them and then do what is going to work in terms of any activation, any marketing, any branding, any PR, anything. Great. That's such good advice. Let's do question number two. So my question was, how do I get an investment uh, from investor for my startup without giving an equity? Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, this is another. This is equity. another one. You really are. You really. This is really. I'm going to go hard on some of these, and we'll, these are things I really want to talk about in detail in future episodes as well. Yeah, so much because there's so much to unpack here with so many of these things. I'm very wary of investors at the start, and and you know what? This question is great because she's already asking, "How do I take investment?" without giving equity, and that's really important because you don't want to give equity away at the start. Because you think that having an investor and giving away equity is great because then you get working capital and that's fantastic and you can do the things that you want to do. What you don't realize is that you are giving away your control of the business when you let any other voice in, whether it's 10, 20, 30%, 5%. There's literally another seat at the table going, I don't agree with your vision. I don't like what you're doing. And you want to be as, you want that road to be as clear as possible and you being the driver of that. And the only person that ever tells you what to do is your customer, no one else. That's the goal. Now, give, get investment without giving away equity is hard you know mm-hmm. it's really hard it's really really hard you can you know my what we did we asked friends and family most who most said no and then we had a few of Craig's friends that said yes we couldn't get a bank loan so that was out of the option out of out of the realm of possibility anyway and so you do you know you also have to question how much money you need. And if you can't be self-funded from the start then maybe you have to find a way to be self-funded from the start. That might mean releasing a lesser perfect version of your product or your service. It might mean only one or two products over 10. It might mean a smaller production run. Whatever it means, not giving equity away and being self-funded are the two real goals here. And finding ways to solve that problem first should be the goal rather than going, how do I get money? Because I've lived that of going, money's going to make my life easier. Money's this. I mean, I've lived that life as well personally, which we'll get to another time. So I know how it feels to think money will solve my problems. It doesn't and it won't. And in fact, it is going to probably make your decisions go totally off course because you'll be driven by this working capital that you have. It's going to make you feel more safe in making decisions that you actually probably shouldn't have made. And you would have made better decisions if you had that that kind of like, oh, I don't have the money for that sort of in the back of your mind because that's when you really solve problems and you really find solutions. Simple as that. Simple as that. <laughs> Simple as that. Hi, Erin. I'm starting a service slash education-based course, but I'm really stumped on how to make it sexy. Would you have any ideas, please, on how to give it that it factor, I guess? It factor. It factor. I like it. I like it. This is a good one because I know this is, this is kind of a two-part answer again. I, I feel like the first half of it is that kind of like marketing, branding, understanding, you know, you've got to find your hooks. Very important. Then the other side of it is 
the it factor might not actually be what your customer wants to be. Now, I say this because I'm a very aesthetically, commercially driven person. I look to the things that people would say are, you know, the things that are in, the cool things, Mm -hmm. the desirable things. It's in my DNA. It's who I am. There are so many businesses, especially service-based businesses, that are not appealing to that person because that's not everyone. Not everyone wants to be the cool person or the it person or in that crowd. That's just like a small percentage of people. So wanting to make your 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 offering sexy or cool or relevant might actually mean something different and it might be alienating you from who actually is receiving it because you don't want – this is, again, just comes back to understanding who your customer is because you don't want to alienate them through your marketing push into becoming cool, becoming like the hot brand, becoming the moment. That also has like an expiry date on it too because trends just roll and roll and roll and roll. And, in fact, there's probably – and I don't know them, but there's probably a lot of case studies about brands that have not been sexy that have probably performed well over a longer period of time and not had to ride that whole bloody rebrand, 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 rebrand because they've suddenly become defunct because they did everything in, you know, so to say lilac (laughs) and everything in lilac. And then lilac was like the colour that no one wanted Four months later. Exactly. And that happens when you try and be it and uh, and like cool and sexy, you know. But I do understand the question in the sense of how do I appeal to my customer? Need to how find a happy medium. Yeah, like how do I level up? And the only way you're going to really work that out is by actually really digging through who your customer is, mm-hmm. who you want your customer to be, seeing where that marries up, seeing if your idea of who you want them to be and who they are is totally different. Are you happy to go where they are or do you want to bring in new customers? It's just doing that real deep dive, you get really drawn into the branding and the exciting colours and the fonts and the logos, but you actually need to do that boring analytical work to actually look at who they are, what they're doing, where they're from, why they want to buy from you, who else they're buying from. Do not alienate those people. At the same time, if you feel that you can change your brand, your service to bring in more people with a different strategy, then go for it. But this is just that core coming back to doing that work on the business and really understanding its foundational values, beliefs, systems, operations, structure. Yeah. So don't get too fixated on the aesthetic. And- yeah. And I know it's, I know it's, it's like we live in that world now. Like, I mean, you know, I'm like, I want a white couch and I want this for my <laughs> podcast when really I actually want to talk about what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Like I'm aesthetically driven. That's fine. And we live in a world where that is like pumped up and up and up, but it actually might not be what serves your business the most. Cool. Let's get into question four. Hey, Erin. My question is back to your triangle days. I'd love to know how far in advance you guys planned um, collections and how long development would normally take. Thanks. Got all these accents. I know. It's amazing. I didn't realize I had this like international base. It's very cool. It's very cool. There's something in that I have to say. I feel like a lot, and we'll go into this another time, but it's definitely a cultural thing. I think where in Australia, we're a little more private about asking questions a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I think overseas, there's a lot more openness open. about, I don't know this. I'm going to ask this question because I don't know. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. Um, so in terms of launching, um, definitely not a year in advance at all. I mean, that is, it's too that hard to is career that too suicide. Yeah. You know, it is, it is really risky. And I know that is how a lot of businesses operate. I'm talking consumer-led brands, 
there's other brands that need to, you know, be that far in advance. But consumer-led, I'm talking like beauty and skincare and really mainly fashion, to be honest, because skincare can have long lead times. Um, but in terms of fashion, in terms of triangle, we were like, we worked on a production model that was 14 days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like, no, not a year. Because we wanted to be quick to market. We wanted to be putting stuff out quickly, reacting, putting more out. We wanted things to sell through and then sell out and then not bring them back in. You also don't want to miss miss a trend if you're doing it that no, far No, and right? we when we launched, we were very micro-trend driven in that way. We wanted to be that way. It ended up being that that bloody neoprene black binding bikini just black binding bikini just ended up being what everybody wanted <laughs> and we saturated the market with that one but we were actually trying to be more trend driven than that and that's the other thing too we were so flexible with that so we didn't stay no we're going to keep doing this we were like no everyone likes this let's run with that for the next 2 years and we did you know and that's 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 why you know working quick to market was good too because we then were able to put out 10 colors and then a new shape and then 10 colors in that shape and then a color blocking version all within a very, very short period of time. So we were getting all that momentum. When you work a year in advance like that, you can't have momentum. Mm -hmm. And you could put out a collection that's really, really not what people want and that happens a lot, has happened a lot, still happens a lot. You want to really keep that production time down and that happens by just small team working closely on it you know it depends on what you're selling but talking from triangle and from bikini if we can do 14 days you can do definitely within maybe a month a couple of months that's still a really really short turnaround time and I know it's tough and I know some businesses now move into more you know slower creating Nagnata one of my favorite favorite Aussie brands is season's what is it? Se- no, movements, not seasons. Mm-hmm. And that is based on we don't want to churn and burn. So we're just bringing things out as we want. And they bring out one collection, one collection. That's lovely. That's beautiful. That works for them. It might work for others. really depends on what you want for your brand again. Again, comes back to the same understanding of your core systems, core values to then expand into how you want all these other structures to to flow. What about Zara's turnaround? Isn't there Seven. something? Seven days. Seven days. That's what we modeled. Try. That's what, yeah, <laughs> we try. That's what we modelled um, Triangle's production on was that. We were obsessed with that. I mean, they, they're a powerhouse. They mm-hmm. they have factories everywhere. You know, that's fast fashion. We weren't fast fashion. We were small business. So we had tiny, tiny production runs. And the reason we got them through is from Craig pretty much living in China for the first six months at least of the business to really drive those orders through because we needed to push them through. Like literally he would stay in the factory, which was in the middle of, you know, mainland China in a rural town, no internet, no heating, you know, bare, bare bone stuff. Yeah, we really did. So in a nutshell, sooner than a year's time. Sooner than a year, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) All right, lucky last question. Let's go. Hi, Erin. I have a question for you. I am about to launch a business and the closer I get to launch day, I get more nervous and really doubt myself and my business model, um, whether people are going to like the products and if the business is going to work. I'm just wondering if you've got any tips, tricks or tools to overcome this. Thank you. It's a good one. That is a good one. All right. So the first thing that jumped out at me that I want to address really quickly um, is that... 
Fear and doubt are two different things. Now, it is so normal to be fearful before launch. It's like that excited nerves. You're mm-hmm. nervous, but you're excited. You know, you're like, oh my God, I'm doing Butterflies. this. Doubt is bad. Doubt is insecurity. Doubt is a warning light in your body. You know, doubt is like, I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. No one's going to like me because I'm not worthy. That's doubt. Fear is like, oh, will anyone like it? Oh, my God. You know, it's different. It's it's very, very fine line, very different. Um, Now, fear, overcoming fear is just by pushing through it. It's just by going, this is the road that's been traveled before. I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn. I'm going to make mistakes. That's part of it. Doubt is probably more related to imposter syndrome Now, I'm leading into that very cleverly because that's what we're talking about next episode. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to leave it there because that is so, and this is something that most people will probably not realise when they say fear and doubt and they say them in the same place. And fear is still a bit of a negative thing, but nerves, let's say nerves, nerves and doubt. Nerves are fine, doubt is not. So Let's talk about that next week. I'm because I stop you there. I know, I Let's know, I know. I want to go. I'm like, I want to go into it. I want to talk about it. But we'll talk about it next week. All right. Well, thank you guys. That was a really. I feel like I did a little bit of an intro into triangle. I definitely gloss over a lot of it. But we are. If you are listening to this, thinking I really want to know about the triangle story more and more. Don't worry. I will talk about it in pretty much every episode that we do, and you'll get to know more of it along the way. Um, triangle yeah. always ties in. Yeah, it always does. Try. <laughs> Triangle always ties in. It does. It does. It always gets in the fucking way. Um, No. So thank you so much. Um, You can find us, well, me and you. You can find you. You can find me on Instagram. I'll share a lot of insights. As you can see, I love getting feedback from everyone. Um, so DM me, ask me a question. I'm pretty pretty active on there. My screen time is pretty, pretty wild. So come find me. And thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.